<clears throat> this is January 3rd, 2021. And I'm going to read from an article I ran across in a Atlantic, the magazine The Atlantic, of last October <clears throat> by George Packer. George Packer is a staff writer for The Atlantic. It, um, it, it's sort of, in it, this, this terrific writer takes stock of where we are, where we've been, and what that might mean in terms of <clears throat> the coming year, or the coming few years. Uh, and I'm going to use this article to I'm going to interpret it, it's at certain times I'm going to interpret it as uh, the journey of an individual, uh, the journey of any one of us. <clears throat> but I'll just dive into it here. Uh, this is, uh, he starts off by quoting a philosopher by the name of Gershom Sholem. And uh, here it is. There are in history what you could call plastic hours. Namely, crucial moments when it is possible to act. If you move then, something happens. And then Packer takes it from there. In such moments, an ossified social order suddenly turns pliable. Prolonged stasis gives way to motion, and people dare to hope. Plastic hours are rare. They require the right alignment of public opinion, political power, and events, usually a crisis. They depend on social mobilization and leadership. They can come and go unnoticed or wasted. Nothing happens unless you move. Are we living in a plastic hour? It feels that way, he says. And it does. And I couldn't help but think uh, of the critical uh, point uh, in the life of spiritual practice where we recognize that what we've been, the way we've been living isn't working and it's not going to work and we have to do something about it. Do something. We can't abide in this dysfunction uh, that we, I as an individual, have lived in. Uh, this is the, uh, what is it, the uh, Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde said, discontent is the first step in the progress of a man or nation, or a woman or nation. 
discontent and and how many how many of us can testify to that um, how many of us who now have come to practice uh, can understand <clears throat> uh, what it takes to get fed up and realize that some you have to make something change you have to something has to give I remember uh, in Sashin uh, back in the in the 1970s uh, Roshi would quote and now I forget who it was uh, maybe Faulkner or Hemingway there is a tide in the affairs of men which when taken at the crest leads to fame and fortune taken at the crest it uh, it really galvanized me in, in those days um, because it it spoke to what I sense what just about any of us can sense is that there's a there is a critical uh, point of point of maximum density that really can prove to be a great beginning. The great Taoist uh, sage Lao Tzu said, "When darkness is at its darkest, there is the gateway to all spiritual insights." That's another one that Roshi Kaplo would quote in Sashin. These were things that filled me with with hope and and faith, uh, because, like just about everyone, I would reach points of darkness in Sashin. And uh, it kept me going, kept many of us going. I think what George Packer is doing in his own, on the level of, of uh, political, social change is, is, is noticing that this is it. This is our chance. And, and so this, uh, this article... Uh, Sort of especially it's especially landed with me uh, now that we're we're starting a new year and uh, we're just a couple of weeks away from a new president. So let me continue with his his article. <clears throat> Beneath the dreary furor of the partisan wars, most Americans agree on fundamental issues facing the country. Most Americans, he says, large majorities say that government should ensure some form of universal health care, that it should do more to mitigate global warming, that the rich should pay higher taxes, that racial inequality is a significant problem, that workers should have the right to join unions, that immigrants are a good thing for American life, that the federal government is plagued by corruption. These majorities have remained strong for years. The readiness, the demand for action is new. What explains it? He continues, nearly four years of a corrupt, bigoted, and inept president who betrayed his promise to champion ordinary Americans. 
the arrival of an influential new generation, the millennials, who grew up with failed wars, weakened institutions, and blighted economic prospects, making them both more cynical and more utopian than their parents. Collective ills that go untreated year after year, so bone-deep and chronic that we assume they're permanent. From income inequality, feckless government, and police abuse, to a shredded social fabric and a poisonous public discourse that verges on national cognitive decline. Then, this year, a series of crises that seem to come out of nowhere, like a flurry of sucker punches, but that arose straight from those ills and exposed the failures of American society to the world. I'm going to read more here now. It's a long article. I'm just going to read about, uh, I don't know, a fifth of it or less. The year 2020 began with an impeachment trial that led to an acquittal, despite the president's obvious guilt. Then came the pandemic, chaotic hospital wards, ghost cities, lies and conspiracy theories from the White House, mass death, mass unemployment, police killings, nationwide protests, more sickness, more death, more economic despair, the disruption of normal life without end. And then he compares it, as others have, to 1968. Um, He says, for concentrated drama, 1968. but he, he, the distinction he, he suggests is that in 1968, the core phenomenon was the collapse of order. In 2020, it's the absence of solidarity. Even with majorities agreeing on central issues, there's little sense of being in this together. The United States is world-famously individualistic, and the past half-century has seen the expansion of freedom in every direction, personal, social, financial, technological. But the pandemic demonstrates almost scientifically the limits of individualism. Everyone is vulnerable. Everyone's health depends on the health of others. No one is safe unless everyone takes responsibility for the welfare of others. No person, community, or state can withstand the plague without a competent and active national government. I've often spoken from this seat about the extreme individualism uh, that is so um, worshipped in the United States compared to other countries. Um, Anyone who's practiced very long at all 
can see the limits of individualism that um, that despite the the strengths of it and, and one of those strengths is being able to um, to dissent from what one perceives as uh, groupthink or collective delusion um, which stands in contrast to uh, the the East Asian cultures uh, that got so wrapped up. I'm thinking of Japan, uh, where uh, the whole country was in in thrall to uh, the emperor's. This is in the 1930s. The emperor's call for war, and uh, how few people felt they could speak out. In other words. Uh, in East Asia, the, the 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 pressure to identify with the collective, with the group, the nation, the family, is so much stronger than here. Here, it's the other extreme: uh, individualism. Uh, what my opinion, my preference, what I want, I I I I me my I me my. This is this is has just become absolutely florid in this country. It always had a strong individualistic bent, this country, but uh, now it is, it is just um, to the point of, I think, to, of pathology. And, and as he says, the pandemic in, a, in the most, most severe, the most dramatic way is demonstrating the cost of this, this kind of maniacal individualism. I don't want to wear a mask. I have my rights. Well, I don't think I need to belabor this, this point. Uh, we've just gotten so far out and this is in one direction. Uh, you could even see the pandemic as, as uh, having, as being a, a, just a massive corrective to wake us up to the real kind of pathology of excessive individualism. continues the story of the coronavirus in this country is a sequence of moments when this lesson broke down that is the lesson of excessive individualism when politicians spurned experts governors reopened their states too soon crowds liberated themselves in rallies and bars the graph that shows the course of new infections in the United States gradually falling in late spring, then rising sharply in summer, is an illustration of both ineffectual leadership and a failed ideology. Shame is not an emotion that Americans readily indulge, but the spectacle of the national coronavirus case rate surging ahead of India's and Brazil's, while it declined in most rich countries, 
has produced a wave of self-disgust here and pity and contempt abroad. Shame. <laughs> he said, shame is not an emotion that Americans readily, readily indulge. <laughs> you could even say that shamelessness is... Uh, shamelessness itself uh, is... Uh, this year has been shown to be a key trait of uh, national political leaders... Again, I can't resist comparing because in Zen we are practicing a tradition from East Asia. Uh, I can't resist but comparing, uh, contrasting our ethos in the, in the United States with that of the East Asian countries uh, where shame is such a, a motivating Force the, the the fear of shame, bringing shame to one's family or one's country. Uh, but uh, here, not so much. He continues. We're at this. Uh, he quotes a Maurice Mitchell, who's the director of the Left Wing Working Families Party. We're at this moment where, because of COVID-19, it is there for anybody who has eyes to see that the systems we are committed to are inadequate or have collapsed. Again, if you, you can see this as an, an echo, kind of a, a macrocosmic echo of the, on a microcosm on the individual level, uh, what we, go through, I don't know, many of us, all of us, I don't know, that, uh, that motivates us to, to a, uh, start spiritual practice, that the systems we are committed to are inadequate or have collapsed. He continues, so now almost all 300 plus million of us are in this moment of despair asking ourselves questions that are usually the province of the academy. Philosophical questions. Who am I in relation to my society? What is the role of government? What does an economy do? Well, that first one, who am I in relation to my society, is something that uh, we can we can grapple with on our on our way to uh, spiritual practice, meditation. What? How do I balance my own needs with the needs of others? He continues, the brutal statistics that count the jobless, hungry, evicted, sick, and dead have forced a rethinking of our political and social arrangements. The numbers are a daily provocation for change, radical change. And then he quotes uh, Michael Bennett of Colorado, the senator from Colorado, who was one of... Uh, 
He's running for nomination, Democratic nomination for president for a relatively short time. He said, I think we are at a hinge moment in history. It's one of those moments that arises every 50 years or so. We have the opportunity to set the stage for decades of progressive work that can improve the lives of tens of millions of Americans. And then Packer sums it up. The crises of 2020 could become the catalytic agent of a national transformation. You know, a couple months, two, three months ago, I gave a Tesho about where how It's it's understandable that many people today are in some kind of depression, um, discouraged, um, given that. Well, I, I spoke of of all of the signs that this to be overly dramatic. The world's coming to an end. Our country's coming to an end. Our country is in such severe decline that uh, it's it's just going to, from here on, uh, become just a shadow of what it used to be. And but even the world itself, and you, if you consider, uh, besides the pandemic, consider climate change and uh, all of these same issues, many of these same issues that we're struggling with in our own country, popping up all over the world. And and I made the point then that, um, yes, that this is the nature of reality, that, that it, there's, there's, a, there's the initial stage, then there's the growth, there's a birth, there's a growth, there's decline, and there's death. Okay, that is the nature of this samsaric world. Uh, but it's, so, so it is with the individual that we're born, we grow and mature, we decline, in age, as we age, and then we die, and and we can we can come to terms with that. We all know. We all know we're going to. We all know about sickness, old age, and death. We all know we're going to decline physically and mentally uh, as we age, and that we will die. But it doesn't mean we have to fall into despair about it. We can we can just attend to what we need to right now without dwelling in morbid thoughts about the future. This article, this article is uh, sort of leaving that aside and looking at more at, at, the, at the hope that we might find in all this. The hope that uh, when things get bad enough, then they have to change. And now I'm going to skip most of the rest of the article, just uh, pluck out a few things here. He says that for any kind, remember this was written in uh, October, or it was published in October. He says, for any kind of national renewal to take place, the Republicans must first suffer a crushing defeat in November. Well, we know what he didn't know when he wrote this article is that they didn't suffer a crushing defeat the president suffered a decisive defeat, uh, but we still have 
this runoff vote uh, for the U.S. Senate in uh, Georgia um, that can determine a lot. But I'm going to steer clear of politics mostly. I'm, I'm turning pages here in this article. Um, yeah, he, he, he looks back and, uh, and says that there were three eras of reform in the United States in the 20th century. And then he, he lists the progressive era, the beginning of the 20th century, the New Deal of uh, Roosevelt, JF, um, Franklin Roosevelt, and then the third being the Great Society. And uh, later in the article, uh, he says, he looks at uh, a certain Harvard political scientist, Robert Putnam, um, publishing a book called The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago and How We Can Do It Again. Uh, Packer says, using statistical data, it's always important, not just opinion, but data. Putnam graphs the years since 1890 as four lines that travel steeply upward for seven decades and then plunge just as steeply downward. The lines represent economic equality, political cooperation, social cohesion, and a culture of solidarity. They, they all begin at the bottom in the squalid swamp of the Gilded Age, and then they rise together through the Progressive Era the New Deal, and the Civil Rights Movement to an apex of egalitarianism, compromise, cohesion, and altruism around 1965, the year of the Selma March, the Voting Rights Act, and the enactment of Medicare, before descending for another half century to the present, to our second gilded age of Twitter wars and refrigerated trucks filled with the COVID dead. Putnam calls this highly schematic arc I, we, I. He wants to get to we again, and for inspiration he looks back to the start of the previous upswing around 1900. The progressive era, Putnam writes, was the result of countless citizens engaging in their own spheres of influence and coming together to create a vast ferment of criticism and change, a genuine shift from I to we. It's hard not to read this article and make the case that it's enough to just sit. I mean, you can't, you can't deny that sitting in its purest sense, that is without thoughts, that this is a great force for change and for well-being 
in the in the in to others, not just oneself. Of course, oneself. But if ever there's a time that called for meditators to engage the world in to extend the meditation into the wider world of social movements and activism, this is it. If ever there was, this is it. He says, we don't, this is Packer again, the author of the article, we don't lack for political agendas, policy ideas, or protest movements. What we lack is the ability to come together as free and equal citizens of a democracy. We lack a sense of national identity and civic faith that could energize renewal. He cites a, uh, a potential uh, way we could sabotage ourselves in this potential rebirth of progressive uh, movement. He first he says, under a Biden administration, the streets are likely to keep roiling, maybe more tumultuously than ever as raised hopes lead to greater demands and disappointments. Most younger Americans have seen no viable kind of politics other than protest. I think he's making an important point here. And then he quotes a, uh, a, a historian, Michael Kazin, who has written many books about the American left. He says, Kazin, a veteran of the 60s who watched the new left doom itself with its own illusions, said, I fear the left will expect too much or be too damning too quickly with a Biden administration. That can always happen. There's, there's a kind of a shark in the water of positive change. He, he, he spells it out with the author, Packer says, the identity politics that more and more defines the left has a built-in political flaw. It divides into groups rather than uniting across groups. It offers a cogent attack on the injustices and lies of the past and present rather than an inspiring vision of an America that will be. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, this isn't, can't be uh, a new thought to people who uh, follow political change that we on the left have a reputation for self-sabotage, of, of uh, splitting, fracturing. I've always felt that the, the great strength of the Republican Party is their unity. They're so much more unified. There's so much more pressure 
to act as one, to not to not break off. Well, uh, they go too far, maybe. But then we also have to be aware of the opposite uh, danger of uh, getting into this fragmentation. You know, maybe I'm pushing this too far, the seeing the individual um, individual change, a sort of a an, an, an analogy of individual change, echoing or uh, reflecting what Packer is talking about, the societal change, political change. But uh, I'm going to dive in anyway. Uh, the one of the ways we sabotage ourselves in Zen practice is finding fault with ourself. Finding fault, we. Zen practice exposes exposes our our faults. It, it exposes our our limitations, our blind spots, um, and then and that's good. We want to see those things. We need to ha- become aware of our whole our whole self, um, and 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 including the shadows. Uh, but then the danger is that we dwell on what we see, the negative things. This is a huge uh, threat to spiritual practice. Uh, is we Once we start waking up and seeing, or once we become more woke, to use that word, in our practice and start seeing all the ways we deceive ourselves, all of the forms of, of greed and, and hostility and delusion. Once we start to wake up to these things, uh, there is the danger of fastening on them and, and giving them too much of our attention. It doesn't help. It doesn't help. It's enough to see them, uh, but not to get bogged down in them, not to uh, fracture um, with our good, between our good self and our bad self. Oh, it's all a matter of degree, isn't it? Uh, now back to the, on the, in the, the realm of social and political change um, and uh, how far left or how far right uh, we can we can go and still get make change happen. Um, it's all a matter of degree. A little more from our author here. The experience of a competent, active government bringing opportunity and justice to American to Americans left behind by globalization would inject an anti-venom into the country's bloodstream. <laughs> okay, I'm going to take one more sw- uh, one more swing at this. Um, what he describes as the, the, the wonderful ideal of a, of a 
competent, active government bringing opportunity justice, we can see on an individual level in our practice as the method, the practical method of sitting, sitting in the proper alignment, sitting uh, enough, sitting every day, maybe going to Sashin. Uh, this itself injects an anti-venom into what could otherwise become a kind of self-loathing um, where we split apart uh, individually. But all right, to continue, the body would continue to convulse. Um, here, he's uh, again, he's talking about if we could do big things to make our government more responsive and competent. The body would continue to convulse, but the level of toxicity would be reduced enough to allow for an interval of healing. And then he says very realistically, no one would abandon their most cherished, most irrational beliefs, but the national temperature would go down a bit. We would have a chance to repair the social contract rather than tear it into ever smaller pieces. And then he says, but an ambitious legislative agenda isn't enough because the problem extends far beyond Washington, deep into the Republic. Americans have lost faith in institutions, in one another, in democracy itself. Everything conspires against our role as citizens, big money, indifferent officials, Byzantine election rules, mutual hatred, mutual ignorance, the Constitution itself. Yeah, the Constitution itself. Uh, I'm just astonished at those who believe that the Constitution in its every word is perfect and unassailable and can't be challenged and can't be changed. Well, we know it can be changed because of the Bill of Rights, but the the adoration, the um, the the all right. Let's call it this, the attachment to the word of the document. In every sense, uh, just astonishes me uh, to think that a document written in uh, what is it eighteen uh, no seventeen ninety seven or something anyway late eighteenth century. Let's call it that uh, late eighteenth century. Excuse me that this could be perfect and not need to ad adapt at all to uh, changing times. He goes on, there is no remedy except the exercise of muscles that have atrophied, not just by voting, but by, by imagining what kind of country we can live in together. We have to act like citizens again. Again, here, this is what I was trying to say, is the need to step up. And Eldridge Cleaver, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. He used the word faith. That's uh, 
that's getting into the realm of religion or spiritual practice, faith. Faith, it starts with faith in the true nature of everyone. And, and what that means, remember, not just doesn't mean the goodness of everyone. It, our true nature means it is our nature to be able to change, to adapt. It can be hard to cling to that faith, given everything we've seen in the last few decades. But to to confirm it through awakening is a huge thing. It means we know, against all evidence, we know that there, no no one is stuck in there with the self that they have. That all of us equally are able to change, to listen, to respond, to at least save ourselves. I scanned some of the Enlightenment accounts in the uh, Three Pillars of Zen. There were a few there, especially Roshi Kaplow's, where uh, he talks about how terrible things got for him, uh, had, to, had to get for him, uh, in order for him to give up everything here and head for Japan. It's a radical, that's a radical change. She, he quotes someone here saying, democracy works only if enough people believe democracy works. We need to, to find trust again, faith, That's what will motivate us to get involved. All right, our time is up now. We'll stop and recite the four vows. <clears throat> 